Our New Testament lesson this morning is found in Luke chapter 20. We are reading verses 9 through 18 this morning. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask for your help. May your spirit illumine our minds and give us understanding of all the teachings of your son. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. This morning we do have a full schedule, and I apologize for running slightly late in the start of our worship service. For those of you who are not with us, we had our congregational town hall meeting this morning where we were presenting our church's budget and answering questions, and we had such good questions and discussion, we ran five or 20 minutes over. Um, and uh, So uh, forgive us for that, and, uh, and we are closing out our series in Luke this morning from Luke chapter 20. And my comments will be brief on these verses because we also have the reception of new members this morning and also the celebration of the Lord's Supper. So it's a full day for us. Recently, I picked up Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind. Haidt is a moral psychologist who uh, was a longtime professor at the University of Virginia, now teaches in New York. And in the field of moral psychology, it's a very helpful book, but he's attempting to understand how human beings work. Why do we do exactly what we do? What is it that motivates us, and how do we come to judge what is good action and what is not good action? He has a peculiar angle on it, a particular way of answering those questions. And in the book, he does a helpful survey of the field of moral psychology, and he tells an unfolding story that there was a survey method done to understand the field back in the 1960s and 70s. It's really quite interesting that a sample population from different cultures would be collected, and they would be from different classes inside of these different cultures, and that short stories would be told to the people, and then they would be asked to evaluate the characters in the story. 
but it's actually a good way of getting at someone's moral values when they begin to evaluate the characters in the story, what they liked and didn't like. One example of a story that was told, the sample population was from a western country, lower to upper classes, and in the, uh, the country of India, lower to upper classes. Simple story, a woman eats oysters three times per, per week. Evaluate the woman. The response to this was so curious. Universally, in the state of India where they were, this was seen as morally negative behavior. A woman eating oysters three times a week. Now in the Western country, it was approved of. There was some pushback amongst the lower classes who found it to be slightly extravagant to eat oysters three times a week. But the difference was incredible. And they began to note that there may be something wrong with the survey. And so they pressed a little bit deeper into this one particular part of India and began to ask questions. And they discovered that eating oysters was considered to be an aphrodisiac and that it was a practice done by women of ill repute in society. <laughs> and so they discovered that this was actually a horrible test, um, that you didn't, you didn't compare like things because we didn't have the analog in Western society. And friends, what this points to is that what we hear and what we value very much depends upon where we sit that how we receive something and how we hear and value something and, uh, and appropriate it very much is dependent upon where we are in life. And we found that to be specifically true throughout the Gospel of Luke. We've taken 10 weeks to look at Jesus' different parables, the teachings that he provides. And we've seen that where you sit will depend heavily on how you hear what, what Jesus has to say. And this morning, as we close out, is really no different. Because Jesus is once again in a situation where his authority is being challenged, and he speaks a parable or a story in order to make a point. And this parable is classically known as the parable of the wicked tenants. Of course, that heading was not given by Jesus himself, and it is important as we even approach this passage, perhaps to challenge that title. That maybe it's not best to look at it as the wicked tenants. That may reflect something of where we sit. But really that this parable could perhaps be more about the gracious landlord. That Jesus is telling a story. That he's attempting to provoke repentance. That he is confronting some wickedness that he sees in the tenants. But he's also speaking about the character of the master, the owner of the vineyard. And in so doing, he's telling us three specific things about the character of God. And let's look at those things this morning. The first of these things that Jesus is telling us about God is that our God is blindly committed to reconciliation. Look with me in verse 12. Jesus has opened the story, told that there is a vineyard, that there were tenants who were letting it out, and they were then producing fruit, 
but they were not returning that fruit. And so the master, the owner of the vineyard, sends servants to collect the money that was owed to him. One servant comes and is turned back. A second servant comes and is turned back. And then we get to the third servant in verse 12, and he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. The violence actually accelerates as the story is told by Jesus. It gets worse and worse. They throw out the first, they throw out the second, and they throw out the third. But what we can see is that there's a considerable amount of patience inside of this landowner, this one who has let out the vineyard to these tenants. Of course, we understand that these tenants were renters, and they had become squatters. They had become those entitled to what was not theirs. They owed some fair share back to the one who owned it, and yet they didn't pay it, and now they were abusing the first servant. But you see that the master doesn't fly off the handle. Rather, he sends a second. And then inconceivably, he sends a third. In ancient Near Eastern culture, this would have been unheard of. This was patience and compassion on a very large and broad scale. And what he's seeking is for the return that was to come from the land. He's seeking for this relationship to be righted with his wayward tenants. And friends, this is how our God works. This is his nature. When we look at this biblical story blown out across the pages of Scripture, Many people will focus upon a God who seems to be judgmental and arrogant and ruthless. But that's really not the case. When we absorb all that the Bible has to say, we see a God who is blindly committed to reconciliation. He is patient. He is slow to anger. All the things that his covenant name says that he is, this is the God who is at work here. And that's the God that we worship and serve. And this is the first thing we learn from Jesus' parable of just God's patience and commitment to being reconciled to his tenants, to his wayward tenants. The second thing, though, that we learn here is that our God is selfless and vulnerable in this pursuit. That in this pursuit of being reconciled to his tenants and receiving the fruits of the vineyard that he desires that he will then take a very aggressive and unusual step. You find this in verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? You can imagine that he would ask that question at that point. At that critical juncture, that would be the, the question. What will I do now that they have beat three servants, that they have cast them out? But what we sometimes miss is the illogic that goes on after the question. What shall I do? Aha, uh -huh. I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Now, I think for most of us, if we ask the question, what shall I do? After sending three servants to collect the rent, and them being beaten and mistreated, and it gets worse each time. The violence is accelerating. 
we wouldn't think to send our most precious possession to those people. But this owner of the vineyard says, perhaps they will listen to him. And friends, this is the story of the God who very selflessly is committed to reconciliation and very vulnerably goes about that task, who exposes himself to danger, who takes that risk to go out. And this is the story that Jesus is telling with this gracious landlord, is that this God goes out to these tenants who'd rebelled against him, against him who were squatting, who were claiming something that was not theirs. And he goes out in order to be reconciled to them, to make peace. He has no reasonable understanding that they would make peace with him, but he does it anyway. He's attempting to appeal to their nobility. In the early 1980s, the king of Jordan, his name is Hussein bin Talal. He ruled Jordan from 1952 to 1999. His son is actually still the king of Jordan. But there was a coup attempt against the king, against Hussein bin Talal. And he learned of the coup that 75 of his highest ranking army officials were gathered together in a barracks and they were plotting to overthrow the government and how they were exactly going to do so. King Hussein asked for a small helicopter. He was transported to the building where the men were meeting. His loyal army officials asked, do we want to surround the barracks and do we want to capture all of these defectors? And he said, no. Drop me off, and if you hear gunfire, then leave quickly. And so they dropped him off alone. He walked down two flights of steps from the roof and barged into the room where the 75 military officials were plotting the coup. This is what he said. Gentlemen, it has come to my attention that you are meeting here tonight to finalize your plans to overthrow the government. Take over the country and install a military dictator. If you do this, the army will break apart and the country will be plunged into civil war. Tens of thousands of innocent people will die. There is no need for this. Here I am. Kill me and proceed. That way, only one man will die. Can you imagine the situation in the room after the speech? And what do you think happened? This is the way it's recorded by the journalist. After a moment of stunned silence, the rebels as one rushed forward to kiss the king's hand and feet and pledge their loyalty to him for life. That is something of the Near Eastern world. Works slightly different than our culture. But the nobility of the king to come and make himself vulnerable appealed to these men who were rebelling against him. And they actually found something inside of them that then submitted themselves, resubmitted themselves to his rule. That is what our God does in sending his most precious and beloved possession into the world. 
He comes to reconcile. He comes to appeal to something in us. He sends what is precious to him. He's willing to risk it all, make himself vulnerable, put himself in our hands and say, kill me. But that is God's commitment, his selfless commitment to that reconciliation. The third thing that we learn here, though, from Jesus as he tells the story of the tenants is that our God also perseveres in accomplishing his purpose. Because the Son is sent, the most precious possession of this master is sent, and he is thrown out and killed. The heirs say to themselves when they see him coming, everything will be ours. There will be no contest. What we have claimed can then rightfully be ours. There will be no master to take it into the future. And so they make their land grab. They make their play. And friends, this is the nature and definition of sin, where we take God's good gifts and we claim them for ourselves and we then relate to them the way that we want to. And we want to do so free from him, free from relationship to him. This is what's happening with the tenants. But you see that the master has a response after they have thrown out his son and killed him. Jesus asks the question, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Again, it's the natural question. And verse 16 is the answer. He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Jesus is ultimately speaking to the religious authorities of the day who opposed him. He was their rightful king, and yet they did not want him. But you see what Jesus says is that those tenants will be thrown out. There's nothing actually wrong with the vineyard itself. It's the renters. And the vineyard will be given to others. You see, God had always singled out a people who were to be a blessing to the nations of the earth. They were to multiply and be great. They were to be the vehicle and the instrument that carried salvation to the ends of the earth. And Jesus is confronting that vehicle, saying something has gone desperately wrong. The renters have run off with the vineyard and used it for their own purposes. And he's now saying, but this God, this God I reveal to you, this God that I am, is committed to his purposes, that he will give the vineyard to others, that he'll accomplish what he always intended to do, to bless the nations of the earth. This is what Jesus is saying, that our God perseveres, that even when the renters go astray, that God will not fail, that he is righteous and steadfast, that he is patient and long-suffering, that he is slow to anger, and that he abounds in mercy, and that he will accomplish his good purpose. And friends, of course, we know that that God has accomplished that good purpose. Jesus then turns, because the crowds were disturbed. Surely not. They understood that he was saying that the vineyard would be removed from them, and it would be given to others. And then he quotes from Psalm 118 that we read this morning. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this is the problem for wayward tenants. 
is that they fail to focus upon the simplicity of what it is to live in God's world and to submit to God's king. That there's one cornerstone that we are to be built into. And many overlook him and find him unimpressive, say that he's not unique, that he's no different than the other religious varieties that are on offer in our world. But Jesus is saying, no, that you have to be built into me, the cornerstone. Otherwise, you'll be crushed into dust. That the weight of your sins will overwhelm you and overcome you. That you'll be the tenant living in God's world, who's squatting in that world, claiming it for your own when it's not. That you must be reconciled to this God and that this God has done everything to accomplish that reconciliation. He's been patient and long-suffering. He's been vulnerable and risky. He's persevered in his purpose. And friends, he's done that so that he would redeem the world that a people would be gathered from every tribe and every nation and every tongue and from every color, and all those people would be gathered together into his church, spread throughout the world, offering praise and thanksgiving to him because they're built together as one family into the cornerstone. That's the one common piece. And when we're built into the cornerstone, what is true of the cornerstone Despite all of our sins and our failures, despite the fact that we too have tried to run away with the vineyard, that that's not what is true of us anymore. That what is true of the cornerstone becomes true of us when we're built into him. That Jesus in his righteousness, that's what becomes true of us. In his sinlessness, that's how God now looks on us when we're united to him. And friends, that's the great hope for wicked tenants. The great hope is the gracious landlord who will send the son sacrificially, who will send him out in order to be reconciled. That's the one great hope we have. We don't stand in front of God because of what we've done. We don't boast in what we do. We don't find our confidence in who we are, what family we belong to. That our confidence comes into the cornerstone that we've been built into. Faith in Jesus Christ. That's what makes us right with God. That's the one hope that wicked tenants have. And otherwise, we get crushed. We're crushed under the weight of our sins and the judgment that they deserve. But friends, God has something far better for you. Richer pleasures in knowing the cornerstone and knowing the one who was sent out, who was willing to take that risk, who was willing to be selfless, who comes into the world for you. And so as you hear all of Jesus' parables, all that he says through the Gospel of Luke, find yourself caught up in the vision of the God that he presents, the God who he is walking on the earth. Because yes, where you sit depends on what you hear. And there are many, when they hear this, find it detestable. But for those who humble themselves 
and tie themselves into this modest cornerstone. All the riches of grace belong to them. That's what your God wants. This is what he is committed to. And so believe and trust in the son that he sent. Let's pray. Father, we do give thanks for your patience and your long-suffering and then your willingness, despite all of our rebellion and sin that we're all on the hook for, to send your Son, that you were willing to do so. And yes, you appealed to us and we threw him out, but we can now be rebuilt into him and be reconciled to you. Build us up together as one family united to Christ. Knowing him and all of his good benefits, we pray in Christ's name.